Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SupChina Access. Or check out SupChina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me is the man who put the villain back in Nashville in. That picker of quarrels, that provoker of trouble, that agent of bourgeois liberalization, that walking spiritual pollutant known in Mexico as El Maíz Dorado, famous in Japan as Guru de no Kono-san, and uh, back in Wogo as Jinyumi. It's Jeremy Goldcorn. Greet the people, won't you? <laughs> Hello, people. Well, I'm glad uh, uh, you got that version of my Japanese name because the actual uh, Chinese characters of Jinyumi mean something entirely different in J- Japanese, which I will let. What, 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 what is it? <laughs> I will let the dear reader <laughs> consult Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. But it has right. to do with a, a part of a man's anatomy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's enough. You said too much. <laughs> it's you true. Spoke. I'm not making it up. <laughs> it gives a new meaning to the man with a golden cord. Not long ago, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy and I taped a show in which we went through the anonymous and deeply hubristic longer telegram that the Atlantic Council published in early February, I think it was. In the end, we decided not to air the, the show. Uh, we actually did it sort of live on Clubhouse. If you've already forgotten about the longer telegram, that's actually a good thing. That would be the sensible thing to do because it was, I think, remarkable chiefly for its ability to unite the ordinarily very fractious community of China analysts in pretty uniform contempt. Uh, I heard not a single word spoken in earnest defense of the thing. Uh, so after the first week or, or so, people completely lost interest and stopped even caring about uh, unmasking its author. Uh, but it did spark an interesting conversation with our guest today, whose critiques of the thing, some of which we actually shared in that show that we ultimately deep-sixed, were particularly trenchant and scathing. My favorite line of his was, comparisons to Kennan, George Kennan, are earned, not claimed. <laughs> that was brilliant. So we have asked our good friend Jude Blanchett, he of the most euphonious name, Freeman Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS, to join us to talk about the pathology at the heart of a lot of bad China analysis. Uh, And uh, sadly, much of this pathology actually informs policy, bad policy, bad assumptions routinely made by people who ought to know better about China's political system. Jude, thank you for being here and welcome back to Seneca. Jeremy Kaiser, thank you very much. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Hey, Jude, before we get started, plug your own podcast on CSIS. We were just talking about it. It's excellent. I think anybody who likes Seneca uh, should be listening to this show as well. Uh, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, for about a year, I've been doing a podcast called Pekingology, uh, a nod to sort of Kremlinology or Sovietology. But the very quickly, it typically involves uh, sort of younger faculty members who are working on China's political system and a deep dive into a, a working paper or a recent book uh, that they've been working on. But the thrust of it is trying to extract some of the insights that are being created in academia, but just, you know, float into the ether or get channeled into a journal, 
you know, that they're only their peers read and, and try to inject some of those insights into the policymaking community in, in Washington, D.C. Which is very much in keeping with what we're, we're talking about today, because you have identified a bunch of heuristics within the community of China analysts that, by your lights, have endured despite the, um, the advances that we've made, at least in academic research of the sort that you're talking about on your podcast all the time, uh, in understanding China's political system and in, you know, understanding authoritarian political systems more generally. Uh, and I think the, these ideas persist despite their being so demonstrably wrong so much of the time. Uh, so I want to go through each of these. And I think in addition to maybe diagnosing the problem, let's also talk about what bad policy has been built on these faulty assumptions. And, and and let's start with one of these that seems, I think, to be really evergreen, the idea that China is about to collapse, right? Collapsism uh, is what you call it. You actually, in, we had a, just dear reader, we, we had a good conversation about this ahead of the show. And Jude has these great little names that he, he comes up with for each of these fallacies or whatever you want to call them. Uh, so collapsism. Uh, why is this one so stubborn? Is it just rooted in, in wishful thinking? Why, why does the party continue to frustrate the people who keep predicting its imminent demise? This has been a, a persistent analysis of China's political system, really before even the death of Mao in 76. Just as a resource for folks, you can go in and, and under FOIA, a lot of the CIA analysis of, of uh, China and, and Beijing from from the 1940s up until probably the early 90s are, are available. And it's a really fascinating lens into how folks in the moment were assessing the resiliency of China's system. But there clearly has been a longstanding bias to the kind of structural fragilities in Leninist political systems that you know, for the modern era, I, I think really picked up intensity after Mao Zedong died in, in 1976, but but again, on and around the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I think just two things stick out to me as to why this is so persistent. One, I think, is a, a kind of an illegitimacy bias. Mm -hmm. I think there is an underlying assessment that Leninist systems, authoritarian systems are fundamentally illegitimate, so they almost have to come crashing down. And, and obviously, as we began to see some of the pathologies of the Soviet Union and China's political system emerged, one can understand how that assessment was being made. And indeed, to be fair, if I was sitting in Washington, D.C. in 1989, 1990, 1991, watching the collapse of the Soviet Union, watching what occurred in Tiananmen Square and, and an intra-party split over how to deal with that, I think that would have been the safe assessment that that China was next. The, yeah. the problem for me, though, is it took on a bit of an ideological hue and, and became, um, I think, became more of a political statement about China should collapse rather than a very, you know, clear-eyed, objective assessment of, uh, of, of China's sort of resiliencies or, or lack of resilience. And so this has led us to predict, you know, 15 or 16 of the last zero political collapses uh, of the Communist Party you know, <laughs> since, since 1976. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Jude, you've also talked about a kind of casual collapsism. How does that get deployed? Yeah, so this is, I, I find that there is just sort of bad or outdated analysis, which is attempted to be an objective view of what, what's happening in China, but that just gets things wrong. But the other one I see is there's a, a, a an assessment that I think made by some people, and I, I don't want to call anyone out per se. Okay, I will. Gordon oh, Chang. Gordon Kay. <laughs> um, where it, it almost frames this as um, every day the Communist Party is besieged in Beijing, putting out fires all over the place all the time. And it's sort of a problems-based approach to thinking about how the party governs. And so it sees it as really, you know, the, the people standing against this, this kind of brittle, weak system with these decrepit octogenarian, you know, 20th century Marxists who are clinging to power. But technology, society, you know, the economy are all racing way ahead of them. And I just think fundamentally, that's not what anyone who's lived in Beijing for a long time understands, that there's really just a, a, a mix of a mix of elements that the party is dealing with, but putting out fires is not the full-time job of the, of the CCP. And indeed, I think what should surprise people is just how much tacit, if not explicit support 
there is predominantly for, for the Communist Party. I don't want to say that there is no issues here. And again, we, we can talk about some of the extraordinary campaigns and depths of repression that the party needs to go to to hold on to power. But simply to make the point that I wouldn't begin from a starting position that Beijing is is on a full-time firefighting mission uh, attempting to sort of hold back progress in society. And I think that's at the heart of, of what more the sort of Changian analysis of, of China as a lake of gasoline gets wrong. <laughs> so maybe you could put your finger on some of the specific bad policy that comes with this assumption. Well, I think we saw, um, and again, I, I, I don't want to be partisan here. Uh, I think we saw this view in the mix of how the previous administration was openly speaking about China. And indeed, I think um, then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's speech in California at the Nixon Library was a really good example of this. The framing of we need to help the people rise up and support the sort of the opponents of the regime within China rests on an assumption that the wall is is beginning to topple down and it just needs the the aid of the United States through whether that's investments in technology or what have you to sort of the, the final the final push and the thing will, will come down. If you were starting from a position of the Communist Party, which is my position, if you start from the party has never in its history been st- more strong, more powerful, had as many resources at, at its disposal, and supports, again, to an unknown degree, but supports certain, certainly a larger degree of legitimacy and support than we previously thought, then I think you would approach China quite differently from a starting position. Oh, for sure. Rather yeah. than think of it as kind of a, a kind of a, a, a rabid dog, which is which is on the verge of, of, of collapse. Totally. Jude, you also focus on a problem in analysis, especially in recent years. I mean, the last two years, three years, perhaps it's come to f- fever pitch. Uh, you call it buyer's remorse, uh, the idea that the U.S. bet that engagement would bring about the transformation of China into a liberal democracy. There would be flowers everywhere and we'd all be singing Kumbaya. That hasn't happened. So uh, the theory goes we need to throw out engagement completely. This is something we've talked about a lot on this show uh, so what is it exactly that you think this view, which really is very common, what does it get wrong? This is probably to me the most frustrating contemporary diagnosis or, or consensus which is settled in. And, and it's frustrating for me because I find it ahistorical and also deeply, deeply uh, condescending in how it frames the issue that China's future was some sort of wager uh, that the West was uh, was was betting on, and that kind of China failed us on this. So, just as a historical matter, I think one can take the position that U.S. posture, position, or assumptions about China's future were off. Um, I think that's a completely understandable. Indeed, I th- I think that's probably the right perspective to take. And I know Kaiser has been arguing very forcefully that. You know, events that transpired externally and internally in China between you know 2006, seven and 2012 had a pretty profound impact on, on the way that Beijing structures its its political organization and thinks about the world. So events clearly matter. But at a more granular level, what has always frustrated me about this perspective is it's not just sort of wide-eyed businessmen looking for profit opportunities or naive diplomats you know, in the U.S. Embassy, who, quote, got it wrong. I wrote an entire book on the idea that this kind of conservative reactionary movement in China grew out of their perspective that looking at the mid to late 1990s and early 2000s, they felt like China was really moving away from its socialist roots. Right. And they looked at, you know, uh, state-owned enterprise restructuring. They looked at the three represents, which allowed capitalists into the system. They looked at the increasing friendliness which Beijing seemed to have with international trade regimes, successfully exceeding into the, the World Trade Organization. All of these were, were very clear indications that China was heading in a bourgeois liberal direction. And if you look at the other side of the intellectual ledger, more open-minded, you know, quote, rightists in, in the Chinese intellectual spectrum, we're also looking at these trends and saying, we've got a more sort of tolerant, reformist-minded 
uh, Communist Party leadership under Jiang Zemin were integrating into the global order. We're seeing trends like technology, which are, are opening up the space for, for public discussion. And so to me, the story is not we got this great big gamble wrong because the Communist Party was always hell bent on arriving at the position it is today. It's just that contingency matters and the Communist Party has agency. And again, I think I think Kaiser's narrative is quite correct here that there is, to me, a decisive shift in how the party thinks about what it needs to do to maintain uh, uh, domestic control and how it needs to engage or, or posture itself in the international order that shifted in, in the mid-2000s. And certainly by the time Xi Jinping took power, had, had reached something of an elite consensus that, that the domestic environment was quite hostile and they needed to crack down. And the United States was now openly advocating for some form of containment. Um, and so that's when you began to see U.S.-China relations begin to falter. But in no way was this some sort of roll in the dice um, and we got it totally <laughs> wrong. And just final point here, I don't want to drag on too long. I think it's also clear that when people are saying this, you know, this is how you utilize the past to make your own present arguments. We're not having a good faith debate about whether engagement was right or wrong. Clearly, positioning engagement as always and inevitably wrong is simply a political statement about what you want to do with U.S.-China relations next. Right, right. Fantastic. Obviously, I'm going to agree with you there. And I think we almost don't need to talk about, you know, what bad policies come of that. I think you've just already already done that. So I'll just move on. Jude, another thing that you bring up is is what you call Xi Jinping as snack key, uh, which I think is a, a, a great way to think about this. I see it all the time. Um, that so-called longer telegram is, you know, exhibit A. It's a prime example of, of this idea, you know, this, it's, it's also related to this idea. I mean, just, just unpack that a bit. You know, that longer telegram suggests that all we need to do really is, is, you know, turn the rest of the party against C, right? Uh, that, you know, it, it's, it's related though to this idea that Xi Jinping made Chinese politics more autocratic, right? Uh, which I think may indeed be true to an extent, but it ignores or, or it doesn't, you know, treat seriously the, the idea that Chinese politics might have also turned Xi Jinping more autocratic, right? Yeah, and, and just to unpack the word, which I always have trouble pronouncing. Synecdoche. Uh, synecdoche. When I, you know, the, the, the definition of it is when you take a, a part of something and you use that something to represent the whole. So if in shorthand, if we say, you know, Beijing uh, as a shorthand for the Chinese government, even though it's a component of it. But in this case, I think it's this um, this tendency to um, have what should be just a shorthand to actually become the whole encompassing uh, a way in which we think about Chinese politics. And right. so, of course, Xi Jinping is an extraordinarily powerful, dominant figure in China's political system. Of course. Um, I think that's a different thing than saying that he is the political system which seems to be how casually, but also structurally in that Atlantic Council report, that was the key assumption. Right. That essentially the, the, the trajectory we're on now is the Xi Jinping trajectory. And that, um, and he states it, he or she states it quite explicitly that as soon as the Xi Jinping is gone, the assumption is we're going to have a more moderate leader in here. So two things are short-sighted about that assessment to me. Number one is dictators, autocrats, even when they have extraordinary amounts of power, have to a certain degree politics as well. And I think with Xi Jinping, what we're now starting to understand is, with the, with the benefit of hindsight, there was a significant degree of consensus about the direction China was going in 2011 or 2010 before Xi Jinping came to power. And so I've always thought of Xi Jinping as, as an amplifier uh, of some broad trends rather than a revisionist of the direction China was necessarily going in, in 2011. And so, again, one can hold that he is a dominant political figure and still understand, or I think should understand, that there is a, a broader sort of sub-elite and elite who support him and who rally around him. Because in the end, Xi Jinping is just a flumpy 67-year-old man who doesn't exercise very well. <laughs> He's not arm wrestling everyone every morning uh, for power. Uh, power comes because of his ability to keep a coalition and, you know, to adhere to him. And indeed, I bet you, as he thinks about the 20th Party Congress coming up, 
He's very much thinking about the resiliency and health of the coalition, which he has cobbled together. And, and is that enough to sort of carry him through the, the 20th Party Congress? The second problem is we don't know what's going to come after Xi Jinping. And so and things um, can always get worse and they usually do, if I may interject. 100%. <laughs> Right. No, 100%. I think, you know, just two points here. Number one, the, the obvious showstopper when I was reading this Atlantic Council piece is, I just imagine someone writing this in 1952 and saying, with Stalin out of power, the Cold War ends. And of course, we saw <laughs> Stalin dies in 53, and, and we've got another sort of 40 years of, of the Cold War and some really bad stuff. Um, the second is, and this is where having some folks who read academic literature would, would be really helpful. You know, we had Erica Franz on the podcast a, a couple uh, a couple months ago, and she's got some really good research on sort of what happens when a dictator dies in office. What doesn't happen is a liberal comes in. Right. Um, and so if you just imagine pragmatically who who is going to have the sort of the, the oomph, the vim and the vigor to step in for for Xi Jinping, and I should note, step in and have access to this this remarkably broad architecture of power and authority, which Xi Jinping has helped build, it's very unlikely that they're going to sort of turn around and and decide to dissolve power. As as just a slight asterisk, I would say, but this probably isn't the time for the discussion, it's worth then thinking about the counterexamples of of a Deng Xiaoping who comes in after Mao and 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 a, and puts China in a in a different direction. Um, so there are historical examples that are worth thinking about for what they tell us about the possible course correction ability. But just very quickly, first of all, Deng wasn't the successor to Mao. Right, uh, Hua Guofeng was. was. Yeah. And second, we almost had a coup with the Gang of Four. And third, Deng um, inherited a broken country where there was a widespread consensus that a new direction is needed just even for power preservation. Unless we think that's what the inheritor of, of, of the Xi administration is going to get, which I don't think anyone thinks it will be a broken, battered country, they're probably going to inherit a strong country with a strong communist party, strong interlinkages into, into the global economy. And their basic assumptions about power and about China's influence in the world are unlikely to be remarkably different from Xi Jinping's. I mean, part of this is that you know, I have this Tolstoyan view uh, of politics and history, and I, I kind of I don't, I don't believe in that sort of you know Carlylean heroic figure making history so much as I believe that the times make the man. And when we look at somebody like Xi Jinping and the conditions under, I mean, this has been something that people have been puzzling over for a very long time. Um, I remember I, I attended a talk given by a journalist here in in my hometown. Where, you know, she'd been working on Xi Jinping and, and talking about how in the run up to, uh, 2012, everyone she'd talked to expected Xi Jinping to be some kind of a, at least an economic, you know, uh, market reformer, but also maybe a political liberalizer as well. And how everyone got him so wrong. And they, they ignore, uh, she did any, anyway, sort of ignored the circumstances in which he came into office. Mm. Uh, right, uh, the, you know the kind of you know near coup conditions that 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 Bo Xilai and Zhou Yongkong had the knives out for him, right? And and you know of course that's going to make him into a more you know a, 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 the paranoid that he's kind of turned out to be. Not that that was the only factor, but it was certainly a factor, and it's certainly one that shouldn't be you know left out of of the, the conversation. I remember you know in in um, our earlier conversation, we were talking about how people now see Xi Jinping as sort of Stalin without Beria. Uh, I would remind people that you know, had it gone the other way, had had it been Boisilai, it would have been Stalin with Beria, you know, in Zhou Yongkong, right? Well, yeah, and also just to the Stalin without Beria, um, you know, Beria lost the public, the 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 leadership struggle after Stalin's death, obviously, right? But to Jeremy's point about it, could be worse if Beria had not lost the leadership struggle to the cute, cuddly Nikita Khrushchev. One can imagine an even worse trajectory that that the Soviet Union could have could have gone on in 1953, right? Um, and that was by no means certain that Khrushchev was going to win that power struggle. So again, contingency matters in multiple directions. The other thing I was just going to say very quickly is to your point about quote getting she wrong. There was a New York Times piece. Gosh, I remember for whenever MBS came to power in Saudi Arabia, and it was this great piece about how often the U.S. had looked at incoming leaders in the Middle East and projected them to be reformers. 
there seems to be a constant bias in the United States when we look at more autocratic authoritarian systems to always be on the lookout for the next reformer. And again, I think it goes back to that legitimacy bias where we're, we're, we're waiting for a new leader to come in and sort of instantiate our longstanding beliefs in the inevitable superiority of, of Western democratic capitalism. And that's why we're always positioned to see a reformer because they like baseball and they watch The Godfather. <laughs> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, a lot of this kind of talk does remind me of the run-up to the uh, Second Iraq War. Uh, you know, uh, all the talk about uh, being American troops being greeted as liberators and this complete lack of awareness of the cluster f to come. Anyhow, um, there's another uh, common trope uh, that you call, Jude, see besieged, um, which is related to some of the things we, we've talked about. It's the notion also in the infamous longer telegram that she is constantly staving off unspecified party elders or other people, you know, who control a few levers of power or have factions behind them. And these people are unhappy with the way he's running the show and are always on the brink of ousting him. Um, can you unpack this one a bit? I think the the origins of this are our our notional model of elite politics and authoritarian systems as as being quite Hobbesian, and and always um, sort of internecine feuds and fighting, and I think that's broadly true, but again, getting the dial calibrated correctly, um, there is no evidence whatsoever that Xi Jinping is facing down or or staving off a leadership challenge, a coup, or even the idea that there's going to be popular uh, unrest such that it will unseat him. I think actually we talked about on this podcast a couple of years ago, the, the every year at Beidaiha, the meeting, there's always a uptick of, of articles about how this could be the year that the elders finally eject him from the <laughs> club. And what was always, you know, interesting about that is Every year they're proven incorrect, and every year those rumors those rumors come back around. And so I, I think it's worth asking anytime we hear this, A, of asking a, to distinguish between grumbling and a leadership challenge, because the two have a lot of daylight in between them. And even if you have a sort of a, a uh, you know, I think we'll talk about this later, but a, a piece from a disaffected, you know, insider like Tsai Sha, that's a true opinion. We should take that for what it is. Um, but we need to understand that registering your, your discontent with a leader, there's a, a huge logistical challenge that you need to overcome if you're going to effectively unseat a leader. And again, imagine that Xi Jinping, long a student of political power, um, has spent a, now eight or nine years in, in office. Um, Imagine what would need to occur as a collective action problem you've overcome to be able to effectively, you know, push the old guy out. And right. so, again, I think we need to split the difference between these and understand, yeah, not everybody is on board with Xi Jinping. But that is a far cry from thinking that at Beidaiha, they're going to hold a, a vote and he's going to be out of the party. Right, right. That distance between grumbling and actually, you know, like taking up arms. You've already flicked at it, but uh, it's related to the idea that you just talked about. And it's one that you, you call the good communist. And you brought up the example of, of Tsai Xia. So there's, there's lots of examples of this. I mean, somebody who is like a leading party intellectual, a professor at the party school like Tsai Xia was, uh, who publishes something, you know, very critical of the party's direction. Uh, and then the analysts in the U.S. tend to just assign it too much significance, right? Or they, they you know, they overweight it. Why do we keep doing this? And, and what are we missing when we do it? Yeah, and, and to contextualize this again, I think this is not just a phenomenon that we deal with in China. This is something that we dealt with, especially in the Soviet Union, where we would have Samizdat smuggled out, or we would have Solzhenitsyn, you know, or Natan Sharansky, write These very, very powerful uh, denunciations of the corrupt regime. And my problem is not that we should disenfranchise or, or ignore these voices. Cause I think having read Sai Sha's piece, I mean, it's a very powerful denunciation of what is clearly the authoritarian direction that China is going in. And what I take away from it is 
there are some within the system who are quite frustrated and see very clearly the dangerous path that Xi Jinping is steering the country towards. But again, just I think linking this to my previous comment, we need to understand that there's always probably more the bad communists out there who are actively supporting the regime. And, <laughs> and I had mentioned in, I think, the show notes, uh, uh, the the Reading the China Dream project, um, the the who sorry the person David Owenby yeah. David Owenby because what I like about that is he's translating a cross section of the intellectual community such that you can read a, a Zhang Shigong you know very throaty support of this neo statist um, uh, direction that Xi Jinping is taking but you can also read people like Qin Hui who are taking right, a, a more right. liberal a, a more liberal track and it leaves you to to now understand that there is a a current of ideas and debates that exist even in an autocratic system like China's. This so, is exactly right, Jude. I mean, I think there's this feedback loop that we are stuck in here where you got these influential people in the China policy and analyst community who are, I mean, we're understandably very eager to, to kind of build up our favorite regime critics. And so theirs are the views that make their way onto the op-ed pages of the major papers, you know, into the major publications like Foreign Affairs, uh, we encounter these ideas so often that we begin to think that they are really representative. Um, it's it's the opinions of of the establishment intellectuals. So, I mean, what you you Judy was you who once asked me who is the David Brooks of China, right? <laughs> that, that that's kind of like the one that we need, and that's what David Owenby does often is he he kind of shows you a selection of 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 David Brookses. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I just as a um. And again, my comment here is only from a, an analyst of trying to kind of objectively get a sense of where the, the current of ideas are, rather than saying I'm, I'm a nihilist and, and I'm as equally weighted to Zhang Shigong as I am to Tsai Sha, because I'm not. I'm much more weighted to, to Tsai Sha. Right. But just as a methodological point, this, this gets to a bigger issue that we're dealing with now because of the weak resource investments we put into open source. Um, selective documents that are translated... Uh, um, Play a larger role than they might than they necessarily should by virtue of the fact they're, that they're just one of the few things that are translated. And, and just to give an example, because I myself am guilty of this, um, at CSIS I do a little translating China section where I, I I have some selective documents translated. And to be honest, they're all portraying the negative side of the of the Communist Party. Um, when I choose those, which is through a very ad hoc manner, I'm making a political decision about which documents do I want to be in the public square. Right. And I have to say, if, if push comes to shove, I don't have a very good methodology on that. So what, and another example of this is um, the book Unrestricted Warfare, which, which was translated in 1996 or 97 by a mm -hmm. few kind of disaffected radical PLAers. Everyone who doesn't know anything about Chinese irregular warfare points to this book as being the kind of the blueprint of how China thinks about anything. Exactly. What I know is the only reason they're saying that book is because it's the only book that they know of because they don't read Chinese. And so that book has an overweighted role. So what David Owenby is doing here is really what more foundations should be putting support behind and what the U.S. government should be doing. And we used to do this with things like, you know, FBIS. Uh, foreign Broadcast Information Service during the Cold War, where you could pick up an issue and get 20 or 30 articles translated that would give you a, a, a sort of broader cross-selection of what the heck is Beijing talking about now? FBIS was such a godsend. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I sat in Alan Whiting's office and read FBIS, um, just stacks of those green bound, you know, oh my God, those are so valuable. So this is a low, I, I don't want to keep harping on this, but this is a low this is a low-hanging fruit that we sh really need to be getting right of what is Beijing talking about on its own right and trying to listen in on that. And the only way we can do that was, is with a well-resourced, methodologically rigorous open source project that's public-facing, not just for the U.S. government. The, the more turgid in party speak the Chinese, the easier the machine translation uh, is. I mean, the, the, more, the more accurate the machine translation is, though, I found. It's, it's kind of, it's such an easy thing to do. Like you said, low hanging fruit. I mean, if you just, if everyone in, in every think tank just had a couple of interns whose job it was, was just to feed text 
you know, almost at random. But the thing is, you'd need somebody to summarize it. I mean, one of the problem with turgid prose is it's so deathly, deathly, deathly boring to read. It's Again, much. That's almost something you could do with with AI. Yeah, right? yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I that would be a. I, so just a, just we I've talked about this a lot over the past couple of months. And indeed, just we've just put in for a foundation grant to try and get something like this up and running at CSIS. Um, but just to say that the limitation with the, the kind of computer translation or AI translation, and I, I side with Jeremy on this a little bit, is there's really so much that needs to be, uh, first of all, carefully translated with human eyes to know really how to render it even on some of the turgid stuff, but more importantly, translating you know the new development stage, which is the new phrase that sort of has come up and will come up yeah. out of the 14th five-year plan, without having someone who is able to kind of unpack that and put a footnote onto that and really mark this as being, oh no, this is something worth paying attention to. I think we're kind of getting 20% of the value that, that we need to be getting out of this. So um, I, I think that's a tool we can use, but it's not a substitute for a more rigorous approach here. For sure. Jude, the hidden reformer is uh, another phrase you use for the policy approach that grows out of both the sea besieged and the good communist assumptions. It's the idea that American policy can influence the position of someone or people within the upper echelons of the party. Although how exactly this is actually accomplished is rarely specified, C- can you tell us about the hidden reformer fallacy? Yeah, this to me is a, a manifestation again of I think some hubris here in the United States, and and I'll explain it with a counterexample, which is imagine there's a meeting, people are sitting around a, a meeting room in Beijing, and they're thinking about, man, how do we empower Mnuchin? How do we empower John Kerry? What steps or actions can we take that, that can make? And now, of course, we would see that as, as utterly absurd because, of course, who would empower or disempower Mnuchin is Donald Trump. Oh, unless, comrades, we are talking about Moscow. <laughs> they have ways to do this with their um, much more sophisticated political, uh, what they call political technology. So there's always that approach. But right. I think if we're talking about should we be making political decisions and policy decisions based on what we can do to to sort of give a steroid shot to a, a, a perceived reformer within the system such that they can rock it up and, and start calling the shots or influencing policy? I don't think that's the way we should approach it. To just, I think, to nuance this a little bit, um, on the other hand, it's very clear that um, a more aggressive approach by Beijing empowered more, uh, quote, hawkish voices in Washington, D.C. over the past couple of years. And indeed, something I think I've been seeing or or saying is uh, the U.S. in its general approach can give succor or uh, sustenance to some voices over others. And indeed, we just think about in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, that the the U.S. global financial crisis disempowered reformers in Beijing. Right? right, in the sense right. that it essentially undercut the intellectual architecture that they were relying on to push for an agenda. So I don't want to make this sound like we any side can do whatever they want with no consequences in in the corresponding capital. But I do think we really need to recognize that that how we influence politics or policy in on the other side is a very very complicated process, and it's not one we should expect to be able to scalpel. Um, by sort of saying the right thing or making the right policy move. Xi Jinping determines what happens to Liu He, not us. Right. So, I mean, I certainly agree. It would be practically impossible to actually, you know, proactively help uh, a would-be Gorbachev to to rise within the party leadership. Um, I think, you know, to your point, we can still calibrate U.S. policy so as not to give oxygen to those in the leadership that we don't want to see gain influence, right? I mean, like, like you said, the really strident hawks. And it's not just sort of, you know, bumbling like uh, the financial crisis, you know, our bungled stewardship of the global financial system. But it can be, you know, it's actually what words we just decide to use, right? I, I, think, I think about right now, you know, our, our, this decision we're, we're wrestling, do we, at the level of, of, of the U.S. presidency, deploy the word genocide, right? What will that do? Um, will that empower hawks or what will, you know? We should be thinking about stuff like that, yeah. Just a historical example. I've, I've just been um, 
reading a lot about the period between 2007 and 2012. And I didn't understand, I was reading some of the Chinese uh, discussion on US-China relations around the time of Obama's visit in late uh, 2009. But um, a a few folks point to, so uh, Obama goes to Beijing in November 2009, and then we have that arms sale to Taiwan in, was it January? January? And then the Dalai Lama visits in February. In, in article after article I was reading, it basically said that was the moment where uh, China made this fully and firmly now decided that the U.S. was um, not, a, not a credible or at least not, not, a, not a friendly actor here. And there was just an assumption now that, that there's outright hostility from the United States. Then you have the pivot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an example of how, and again, I'm not making a judgment on who, what we should do or shouldn't do. But there's an example I, I think of in a way that wasn't likely predictable to the Obama administration, that actions they were going to ch- take would have such a cascade or ripple effect. And from Beijing's perspective, it was because we just hosted you two months ago. And of course, from the Obama administration's, you know, it's probably the other way of, we just visited Beijing. We still need to signal, you know, to our other partners like Taiwan and to the Human Rights Committee that we're we're, we're not sort of throwing you under the bus. Uh, right. But there's an example of how you know decisions can obviously have ripple effects. But no one was designing anything there, and nor should I think should we ever try to. We shouldn't try to design it, but we should always be thinking. You know, we should always be exercising security dilemma sensibility, right? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just, it's a, yeah, it's just that's a that's a different discussion of how do we empower reformers. Sure, sure. So, Jude, I can't imagine you think that everybody working on China has embraced uh, these fallacies that we've been talking about. Um, so, I wonder what, if anything, do you think analysts who do not buy into this have in common? Yeah, one thing I would say is what's interesting is almost all the fallacies we've talked about here today, I don't run into in my day-to-day conversations with analysts in the U.S. government. They're not the ones, though, primarily making these top-line judgments. And indeed, the kind of the big think pieces that are out there, like, like the longer telegram, that's where I think we encounter these more often. So I think there is a, a class of younger analysts who are are fully aware of a lot of these bad heuristics. But I think a couple things stand out to me. One is there has been, I think, enough institutional experience with China over the past decade to understand that the party is a much more complicated actor than we had given it credit for. And so understanding more of the nuances is critical. And I think for people like myself, you know, I was living in, in Beijing in 2006 when I don't think I knew a darn thing about the party because why would I? It didn't matter. And then being in China again in 2017, a decade later, where my whole job was explaining to foreign companies that you really got to start paying to attention to the Communist Party. I think seeing a paradigm shift or an epoch shift over the course of a decade was a, was a powerful stimulant to especially think some younger analysts who are trying to figure out how the heck did this happen? You know, what right. occurred? What went wrong? What were the driving forces? The other thing I would say is um, in, in academia, I think you can see the sort of cyclical nature of this where after the, the collapse of the, the Soviet Union, obviously the area where you should go into is, is post-communist uh, systems and looking at sort of democratization, right? That's where that's where the sort of interesting stuff was. And so I think you had a relative atrophy of people who were studying authoritarian political systems. But starting in 2008, 9, 10, 11, there really were the rise of a number of really important scholars, and then they brought in some PhD students. So now you have this extraordinary explosion of really great qualitative and quantitative research that's, that's happening on in a comparative sense, but also China's political system. People like, you know, out at UCSD, my old comrade, you know, Victor Schur, um, people are just doing really, really fascinating path-breaking stuff, which is yielding lots of insights about how these systems behave, what what the kind of incentive structures are. So I think a lot of that is filtering down into, uh, I- into how sort of some of the younger group of analysts are thinking about China. And if you want to hear some of that, um, Victor is on Thursday nights uh, on Clubhouse along with Nason Mapubi and uh, 
Mary Gallagher and Maggie Lewis in, in Taipei and a couple of other scholars. And they do this thing called Zheng Fa Wei, uh, which is um, a pretty, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, it's a really interesting discussion and a lot of this stuff gets brought up. And yeah, I share your enthusiasm for Victor's work. I um, just got, can I make one final point? Yeah. Uh, this, this is a bit of a, a, a bugbear for me recently is I also think there's, um, People who do this work need to be able to separate their their um, diagnostic analytical lens from what their proscriptive um, views are. And hmm. I often see that one influences the other going in both directions, which is if your job is as an analyst of Chinese politics, you really need to get a, a check on. Uh, and I see this on, I'll, I'll, just to go after both sides here, I see some of my more, quote, dovish friends who I think because they don't want... An, an, an overreaction, right, from the United States that there's either a, a ignoring or downplaying just how bad a lot of things are getting in China. Sure. On the other side, there are people who, because they think it's time to take down the CCP, take every little thing in China and ramp the volume up to 48. And so I, I think that's because they've merged proscription with diagnosis. And I think, you know, what really needs to be the case is you need to with all objective analytical rigor, look at what the heck is going on, first calculate that, and then if you want to think in a more normative sense of what's the appropriate way to respond, that needs to be, to me at least, a separate exercise. Otherwise, you're going to bias where you're looking for facts and, and how you're analyzing them. I blame Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wondered, Jude, I'm speaking of social media, what do you make of this reaction to, in our field to this clubhouse moment, you know, from a few weeks ago? And I mean, it's still going on. I mean, I, uh, I, really guys, I think perhaps you should explain the, what you mean by that. Not everybody uh, knows yeah, anything about okay. clubhouse. No, that's fair. Frank, um, you know, this, this new social, this voice-based drop-in social media platform called clubhouse that was, you know, for a long time, just sort of uh, full of digital douchebags, you know, in uh, Silicon Valley, all, it was all, you know, stored up this and uh, growth hack that and... Uh, 10x. Suddenly, the, yeah, 10x. <laughs> 100x. Um, Bitcoin. Yeah, it was a lot of, you know, Bitcoin. Dogecoin. And, yeah, and, right. Elon Musk. Exactly. Yeah, right. anyway, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, because of that last, you know, thing that you named, Elon Musk, uh, there was suddenly this huge surge of Chinese interest in it and... Uh, there was this sort of, you know, hole in the firewall momentarily. There were people who were, who were able to get their hands on invites, uh, within the PRC and a lot of people in diaspora as well, where a lot of Chinese people suddenly flooded onto the site. And we saw some really remarkable things happen. I mean, we did a show a couple of weeks ago, Jeremy, you and me about, um, the Xinjiang room. But, um, I, I've been, you know, thinking a lot about this. Uh, I, I worry about how, uh, you know, the way we're talking about it, the way that the clubhouse rooms themselves, the ones that I've been anyway, for the most part, have been moderated. Um, it's going to reinforce a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, but at a popular level, you know, that, that people who are reading stories about this, um, you know, but even I think I, I've seen it infecting a lot of seasoned China analysts who really ought to know better, um, who should understand how incredibly unrepresentative this slice is that we're seeing through this little aperture. And they're making... Again, they're making these sweeping generalizations based on on what they've seen. I, I I think a way I put it before was that somebody punched a hole in the firewall, and and they've concluded now that the scales are just going to fall from Chinese eyes, and everyone will you know hate their government as much as we think they ought to. Yeah, I, I you know that I had a a similar ish reaction to it on the on the on the more I think sad side. Um, it did though for a moment. I think. Your, I, I saw your your uh, thread on the Xinjiang room. It was a reminder, though, of just how squashed public discussion has come in chi in China. That we're we're really excited when we feel like we're sort of sitting in on an authentic conversation about what are some of the more uh, delicate, challenging, sensitive issues in this really complicated, complex, great country, and so. Uh, you know, I think some of the reactions, which I agree with, which is, you know, not not the scales will fall from their eyes, but but more, gosh, it's great that we had this, what seemed like a window into how some people are talking about sensitive issues, which just aren't talked about that much in, in the public square in China. Right. Um, so that was my kind of my sad take on it. Uh, you're, I think you're 100% right, though, in terms of what do we, quote, take away from this? Um, 
very, very careful that we don't treat anything as representative. Um, you know, that, that we're very well calibrated to the demographic that is engaging with a platform, who they likely represent, what slice of, of a country. I mean, the truth is, you know, China's got 1.4 billion people. I, I probably disagree with 90% of what almost every opinion that people in China hold in the same way that I disagree with 98% of the opinions held here in, in, in the United States. Um, there are wonderful people. There are bigots. There are narrow-minded people. It's, it's, a, it's a big, complicated country. Um, And indeed, I think we'd be surprised. I was always surprised on, on, you know, even my most kind of liberal, quote unquote, Western Chinese friends. Man, if I brought up Xinjiang or Taiwan, I would get an answer that really surprised me. But that's (laughs) my problem, right? That was my that was my lens I was bringing to them of thinking that because they think this about bell bell bottom jeans and football, they must think this about other issues. And that that's my narrow bias, right? Of, of right, right, kind right. of treating Chinese people like automatons who who have a, a, a certain set of reactions. Um, so that's my, you know, that's not a very articulate take, but um, I think it was interesting, sad, but obviously a limited tool to understand, quote, what China thinks. In some ways, it's a reprise of uh, Bill Clinton's old... Uh, a uh, chestnut about uh, tr- you know the internet trying to control the internet is like nailing jello to a wall which of course famously the communist party <laughs> succeeded in doing but uh, it reminds me a, a little bit also of the excitement about uh, Weibo uh, uh, yeah. um, at oh, one yeah, point sure. and you know I remember Han Han at one point saying writing that if, if, if you were reading Weibo you'd think the whole country's falling apart and there's about to be a revolution and then you look out your window and there's just a normal day in Shanghai, everybody going about their business. No smell of tires burning in the streets. Yeah, and actually Han Han is a really good example of kind of lessons we still haven't learned, right? I feel like why why was Han Han well, you know, he was good looking, he was a race car driver, I get that, but the the kind of the fact that Han Han, you know, he's a great writer, but how um overweight Great is doing a lot of work there, Jude, but yeah. Yeah. how overweighted we are to the Ai Weiwei's of the world and the Han Han's of the world. And it really just depends on what the base question you're trying to ask is. Um, You know, if you're trying to ask, quote, what does China think? Then no, Han Han's a really, really bad example of someone to to look at. Um, If your question is, what what is a kind of, what is an urban, cosmopolitan, you know, liberal-minded, you know, wealthy, famous race car driver think, then he's a great example. <laughs> and perhaps the only one. <laughs> uh, so I, I've got another couple of, of tendencies. I'm not sure they rise to the level of heuristics that would make your list, Jude, but other things that drive me crazy, I don't have names for them like you do. Uh, one of them is this conflation of, of economic and political liberalization. Like like we can't break out of this, this stubborn belief that you can't have the one without the other. And we still, I feel like I have to go through this Ritual. Anytime somebody says, "Oh, he's a liberalizer" or "he's a a reformer," like, what do you mean by that? And and we still just don't seem to have the language just baked in to distinguish immediately. Yeah, I, I obviously the I, on the future podcast I just recorded yesterday, Jason Wu, who's at the University of Indiana and is doing some interesting stuff with with ideology um, in China based on survey data from from the early '90s and the early 2000s. And and oh, what wow. just, what just came away from the conversation for me is just how sui generis the ideological spectrum is in China, right? It's mm. not one you can map on that well to the US, which of course we continue to do. And I think there's a real normative sense of, you know, it, it's it's like the word middle class. It, it comes with this real normative connotation of the right. type of person and what their orientation will be and how they will feel about, you know, blue jeans and Coca-Cola um, without stepping out to understand what is the sort of what what is reform in the Chinese context? And indeed, I think in many ways, you know, Xi Jinping is is quite the reformer in the sense of re- reforming. Um, but but if it's a trying to map on sort of you know re- reform with a, a a connotation for the United States, it's not going to get you very far. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm I'm eager to read that. That'll that's a paper. I'm make sure to send me a link to that because I I'll I'll definitely listen to the show too. That's the kind of stuff I'm, I'm, I really lap up. I'm into it. Um, I, you probably remember the I Ching Xu and Jennifer Pan yeah. stuff, right? That, that's that's all fascinating. And it kind of drew slightly different conclusions, it sounds like. I'll, I'd be interested in comparing notes with you on that. Um, 
one more frustrating tendency that I see is is this tendency to either overstate the role of ideology. I mean, setting aside for now whether we can you know agree what is actually meant by ideology, you know, overstating the role of ideology in the CCP today, or completely understating it. I mean, it just drives me nuts when I see people will make claims that it's all consuming, completely subsumes simple nationalism or whatever. It also drives me nuts, equally nuts, when they completely dismiss it and they believe that it only plays a purely cosmetic role and that there are no, you know, actual communists in China. Uh, it's so hard to right size, though, right? Yeah, it, it, not to refer to the keep referring to to the Jason Wu podcast, but one of the things that we talk about there is just, um, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about I- ideology? Yeah. And I think there's a good one of, you know, get 10 people in a room, you'll get 12 different answers on, on what it means. Ideology in common parlance is usually something the other guy does. It's, it's like, you know, we're, <laughs> we're patriots, they're nationalists, that, right. that sort of, you know, dichotomy. Um, but I have to say, it's, it's one of these, I don't think I've really read a convincing answer, and I certainly don't have one for myself of, um, w- you know, what does something like communism mean to the Communist Party of China? Um, you know, clearly Xi Jinping is not a dyed-in-the-wool, thoroughgoing Marxist. Right. Um, clearly, though, Marxism is not nothing to them because they spend a lot of time thinking about it. And so the cynical view is, oh, it's just all dressed up, you know, nonsense. But that doesn't seem very convincing to me either. And I've not exactly. found a good way to split the difference. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, it's, I can't wait to read this Jason Wu uh, paper then. That sounds really, really good. Hey, Jeremy, do you have any pet peeves that you want to? I mean, I think there? we've covered a lot of them. I, I do think we need yeah. to um, at least say, and Jude did hint at this earlier, that we have been criticizing a certain approach, which tends to be the approach that sees, you know, the Communist Party as an illegitimate regime that is about to collapse, you know, for whatever reason. Um, uh, And we've been saying, well, this is clearly not the case. Um, I do think there's also another, you know, completely different tendency, which is to see the Communist Party as all-powerful, as blessed with the strategic vision and also impossible to combat so that, you know... Thinking a thousand years into the future. Yeah, and there's nothing we can do about any of this. We're just going to have to deal with our nightmare future uh, under the communists. When the truth remains that, you know, China is uh, still very much, in Susan Shuck's uh, memorable phrase, a a fragile superpower. Um, For sure, for sure. No, excellent point. I completely agree with you. I thought you were going to go with you know we have to you know think about the the people who who think that it's uh it can do no wrong the tankies oh but I mean come on enough let's let's get serious I I I what what has amazed me about the the last couple of years is tanky the the return of the word tanky which I I don't think I'd heard it for perhaps twenty years and you know it used to be like smelly people in East London. Uh, you know, he didn't wash really was what I thought of when I thought of tanky. I'm going to do a Google engram on it right now. Whereas now it, it, it seems to be, um, you know, young, mostly men uh, on Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, tankies. Well, if I can be perfectly honest, um, I had no idea what the word went until about six months ago. And I honestly thought it was a pejorative for people who work at think tanks. Ah. <laughs> I, we need uh, one for them, too. Uh, honestly. So I was beginning to wonder if I was the tanky people were, were <laughs> criticizing on Twitter. And I was relieved when I actually Googled the term. Okay. So, and you, okay, so I'm looking at a, a, a Google engram viewer of the word right now. It's really interesting. There's a big peak uh, in about 1923, 24. That may have something to do with the fact that the tank was actually introduced for the first time as a battlefield weapon in World War One. Then there's one right in the early 1950s. Of tanky? Really? Yeah. I, I, right. I thought okay. it was a reference to the tanks in Hungary, the Soviet tanks in... in yeah, it should be. So 56. But it, you, you it, mentioned the 20s. What, what did you say? In t- I don't know. Oh. I it must know. be a different I mean, tanky. It must, yeah. Maybe that was the thing. It must tankies. have been something else. But then, uh, then we see a huge peak of the word in 2009, weirdly, and then it, it dips down. That by two, 2017, it's it's quite low. Very strange. Uh, and now you uh, occasionally find people actually proudly identifying themselves as tankies. That's uh, <laughs> a very strange phenomenon. 
Indeed. Yeah, well, we'll save them for another time. Or not. Um, Jer- <laughs> yeah, right. No, a great point, Jeremy. Great point. Jude, what a pleasure to have you back on the show, man. Um, well, thank you very much. No, it's it's a real it's a real pleasure. Um, and and it feels like we just had a, a a nice intimate conversation, even though I can't see either of you, and I'm sitting here in the house I've been in nonstop for a year. So, <laughs> <laughs> well. One of these days. I mean, I guess the last time I saw you was in Durham when we went and That's saw correct. that Irish yeah. band. Right, right, right. My, one of my fun. favorite bands, which unfortunately the I would recommend. No one goes see a concert with Kaiser because he knows enough about music to pick apart the band you love. Uh, oh, reason, I wasn't. For reasons <laughs> you'd not thought of. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, right. I think I did say something about the formula. Right? You did. I did. There was a formula. Uh, anyway, let's move on to recommendations. <laughs> I won't recommend the gloaming. Uh, but, but first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. If you like the work that we do with the podcast, the very best thing that you can do is to support us uh, by subscribing to SubChina Access, our daily newsletter, with all the latest news from China expertly winnowed down to a manageable read from hundreds of different news sources. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to the other shows in our network, including the second season of Strangers in China, which just started up again. Uh, it's just terrific. Also, check out You Can Learn Chinese, our podcast about tips and techniques, methods and mindsets for learning this very difficult but oh-so-rewarding language. And uh, we're really excited about China Stories, the audio versions of stories that we do, uh, read by me and by several other readers from some of the best English language outlets that are focused on China, including Sixth Tone, Caixin Global, The Wire China, David Barboza's cool project, The Week China, and Protocol China, which is David Wertheim's cool project. Definitely check it out. It is a great way to stay caught up with the longer features uh, that are being produced about all things Chinese. All right. On to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. Sure. I, I'm, I, so, I've just remembered, I think you may have recommended this before, but I, I finished it. The War on the Uyghurs by Sean R. Roberts is a very timely It's great, book. right? Yeah. Um, really, really, really good this book. This is, you know, I think something anyone uh, uh, thinking about uh, the awful things going on in Xinjiang uh, should read. Uh, I didn't actually make it a recommendation, but we're having Sean on the show, right? Yeah, we. I know so, that's in yeah, the works. Yeah, I'm looking for it. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, painful but necessary reading, I would call it. You know, it's 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 no, a very. Sure. It's not a difficult read, in the sense of getting you know. Turning the pages, it's but it's a well very written. difficult yeah. read in terms of, uh, you know, yet another thing that uh, depresses one about the state of humanity. On a slightly more uh, positive note, um, I'm reading a book called The Plague Cycle, The Unending War Between Humanity and Infectious Diseases. Uh, infectious disease. <laughs> Is that slightly... Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, we win a lot of the time <laughs> against the infectious diseases. Um, uh, the author is Charles Kenny, and, you know, it, it goes from prehistory through to COVID-19. Um, uh, it's uh, also very timely. Uh, Charles Kenny, The Plague Cycle. All That's right. it. And Sean Roberts, The War on the Uyghurs. Yeah. So, sorry, I, you know, n- neither of them are, you know, going to... Put you in a, so I think we've got two movie, of the four horsemen there. Jude, <laughs> yeah. uh, you want to finish out the four? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, um, not sure if this is uh, suitable for for radio, um, but my wife got me a book called Cabin Porn, which is <laughs> do tell. It's co- <laughs> is a collection. I should just say, um, I spend, I watch a lot of YouTube, and um, one of the one of the categories of videos I watch are people who have off the grid cabins in, in like Northern Canada and how they start a fire and how they built the cabin. And it's because I just have a dream of either up in Vermont or in West Virginia, getting 10 acres and building a off the grid cabin. So uh, my wife got me this really amazing photo book called uh, cabin porn, which are uh, uh, 500 pages of some of the most amazing uh, cozy, wood adorned cabins uh, throughout the world. So if anyone like myself has a dream of having a, 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 a cozy cabin somewhere, um, you'd do worse than starting with cabin porn. This is oh, what happens nice. when we become middle-aged. Our wives buy us porn, <laughs> but it's actually about real estate. <laughs> well, she got me two books. I'm just not naming oh, the other. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
All right. I am going to recommend two essays by Thomas Meany. Uh, both of them are in the New Republic and both are critiques of biographies. Uh, actually, one of them is a critique of an autobiography. Uh, both of which I, I had really, I had read and, and loved and I probably wouldn't have thought about critically had it not been for Meany's essays. Uh, the first was about George Packer's book about Richard Holbrook. Uh, that book's called Our Man. And I, I think I've recommended that, that book before on the show. I still love the book, but you know, the, the, the essay is really, really good. Um, the second is about the first volume of Barack Obama's memoir, A Promised Land, which I, you know, I, I read this more, more recent one first just the other day. And it was, I have to confess, it was really jarring. It was kind of hard and I, you know, was fighting down defensiveness and anger. Uh, but I mean, it was obvious that there was a really formidable intelligence at work in this guy, you know, Thomas Meany. Uh, I, I knew I'd seen his byline before, so I, I looked him up and I found, um, that, that essay on Packer, uh, on, on, uh, Our Man from 2019 is also really excellent, also kind of hard to read. Again, because of the same defensive instinct. Cause, you know, I, I really liked the book. I really liked, you know, for all his flaws, I kind of liked Holbrook, right? Uh, anyway, check out Thomas Meany, the essays, The Limits of Barack Obama's Idealism and The Canonization of Richard Holbrook, both in the New Republic. All right, guys. Well, that was that was a ton of fun. Great great to have you back on, Jude. Thank you very much. It was a real, real pleasure to be here. Yeah. And Jeremy, as always, man. Yeah. Thanks, Kaiser. Thanks, Jude. It was great talking to you again. Maybe, maybe, maybe one day we'll see each other in the flesh again. I would oh, we will. we will. In meat space. In, in some cabin somewhere in West Virginia. Well, I don't know about that. I know the kind of books Jude gets. <laughs> hey, I was going to... Uh, have you guys uh, seen Deliverance? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I live in Tennessee. <laughs> Open invitation. All right. We'll fade out on that. Um, the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey.